G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm really excited to have my financial planner slash accountant slash finance broker, Stuart Wames, along from ProSolution Private Clients, where we're going to talk about how to minimise your tax over the three phases of investment. Now, this is a bit of a different approach to what most accountants you would speak to would take, where they predominantly focus on the short term and forget about the longer term when you actually need your income uh, as you move into retirement and where tax is going to play an even more significant role in uh, what you end up with when you need it most. So, I've had so much good things to talk about with Stuart here that we've split it up into two parts. In this first part, we're going to touch on understanding the three phases of a property's life and the tax considerations in each phase. And then we're going to deep dive into income tax considerations and land tax considerations in part one. Stay tuned for part two because we've got a lot to cover in that one as well. For now, let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. Well... Can you believe in a year of running this podcast, we've not touched on any accounting topics? I thought it would be ideal to not just uh, cover something accounting related, but also in an interesting way. And what better person to give us his insights than Stuart Wames? Hey, Stuart, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Jared, pleasure to be with you. It's uh, just a su- surprise that tax wasn't the number one topic to t- talk about and to think about, hey, it's such an exciting topic. <laughs> well, we've covered so many other topics that I actually posted on our Perth Property Investment Facebook group, what people wanted to hear about, and we had quite a few requesting tax. So we've finally got around to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, it's not an exciting topic, but it's one that um, everyone wants to hear about because... I guess we we don't necessarily lament paying our fair share of tax, but we certainly don't want to pay any more than our fair share. So it makes mm. a bit of sense. And it's one of the other certainties in life, isn't it? We've got <laughs> death right. uh, that we don't look forward to and taxes uh, would be right up there. <laughs> you might even add lockdowns to that list, but uh, hopefully not. <laughs> well, not as much for Perth. So I know <laughs> no, you're fresh right. your Melbourne experiences. <laughs> <laughs> and look, it would seem most of us just go out and buy a property first and worry about tax later, uh, that's one camp. Other other people worry too much about tax and go and buy the wrong property. And then even if they do give tax some considerations, they're so focused on the short term that they often miss the larger picture of how things will look in the future when it really matters, when they really uh, need the income in retirement. So what are some of the things that we should start to think about tax from a longer-term perspective? I think it's uh, important to acknowledge and recognise that property really kind of has uh, three phases, three tax phases through the journey, and each of them give rise to different tax considerations. So focusing on one phase, particularly if we're going to be long-term investors, will come at the cost of other, potentially come at the cost of other phases. 
So there's no magic bullet here typically, but it's really about balance. Like everything in life, you know, you've got to balance out the pros and cons and find what is that kind of equal balance. And you could do that on a property basis, or you could even uh, even better think about it on a portfolio basis mm. and look to balance those things out. So there's three stages, as I said. So let's talk about them. The, f- the first this stage- is where people often get it wrong because they don't appreciate the stages. And they might rush out and try to fulfill requirements of the later stage, but then they don't get their initial growth that they need in order to produce the income later. Or, so, yeah, take us through the stages, yeah. Yeah, or worse still, Jared, I mean, sometimes people will come to us and say, oh, we, we want to invest in, in property because I want to save tax. And I said, well, saving tax is a consequence of investing property and a reason to do it. So mm. um, sometimes they're chasing those tax benefits uh, without then thinking about potential tax liabilities down the track. So, and look, yeah. uh, sometimes it's the accountants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't want to slander the rest of the profession, but they're often like, you know, you're paying too much tax, you need to save some tax, go buy a property. And that's the uh, the level of sophistication that they're uh, getting advice on so yeah absolutely it can be too short-term focus so the first phase is the negative gearing phase one that's been well publicized and talk about talked about and sort of one of the attractions i guess that some people consider when contemplating investing in property is that you can offset the income loss from your property against other taxable income thereby saving you some tax or put it in a different way, the, you know, the tax man is going to give you a, a refund to help you uh, with the cash flow cost of holding that property. And so that negative gearing phase, I mean, it greatly depends on what the prevailing interest rates are and how interest rates change over time. Uh, because, you know, you got to buy a property today and you pay 3% in interest, you know, your negative gearing benefit's not going to be that substantial. Uh, mm. Whereas, you know, and I guess 10, it can depend on your tax bracket and. It yeah. d- definitely depends on your tax bracket, but you know the interest rate uh, element is the, the well, biggest, the, yeah, the, thing, yeah. the, the biggest component. So that, that first phase, that negative gearing phase, where you're getting where you're getting tax savings from investing in property, can typically last anywhere from say five to sort of twelve or thirteen years. And so, and particularly in those earlier period, you know that five to seven year period, you might be enjoying material tax savings. Um, and then after sort of five to seven years between that and sort of 12-ish odd years, you know, the, the savings aren't that material or that significant. So that's the first phase. The How would that be, Stuart? Is that because typically if interest rates are a bit higher, the property's moving, its rents are increasing in line and moving more towards a neutral and positive position, I would imagine, over time? That's right. Your loan value doesn't change. Your, your loan amount, I should say, doesn't change over time, but the value of your property and therefore, hopefully, the value of the rent that you're receiving uh, changes over time with it. If it's inflation or just general market conditions, of course, you could speak to that um, better than anyone else. Uh, and so just generally, you know, it, you, you should hope that if you're renting a property today, you're getting more rental income in dollar terms than you were 10 years ago. Uh, but the interest component's the same. It's just really relevant. You know, the, the, the loan balance is the same. It's just really a consequence of what is the interest rate at a particular time. Hmm. But generally... Phase, what, what, what's after the negative gearing phase? What's next? So, so it'll go through a neutral phase where there's no sub- substantial tax savings, but there's also no substantial tax liabilities. You know, the, the, the property is pretty much break even. 
uh, or it might be at a slight loss or slight profit, but it's not material. It's not it's not a big deal. It's not really having impact on your overall tax position. And then the the final phase is uh, a sort of tax liability phase if or when you decide to divest of the property. And and there, by that I'm talking about capital gains tax because hopefully after you've held the property for twenty plus years and you've bought well. Uh, hopefully, you've got some unrealized gains there that you need. That, that if you go and sell, uh, you're going to pay a very large amount of potentially pay a very large amount of capital gains tax. Hmm. And you know, we all go and buy all, all the mantras, buy and never sell. Uh, and and it's a good mantra because the longer you leave a property or longer you hold a property, the the better the compounding growth works. You know, the the in particularly in dollar terms, it can be you know very substantial. Hmm. But and the more the chance of catching those cycles too because everyone worries Mm. so much about timing things perfectly. But as we've seen in the unpredictability of uh, the last 12 to 18 months, you know, you never know what X factor is going to kick in a growth period and for how long it may last. So, And also the other thing too, Jared, I find that uh, more experienced investors can – uh, ride out those those periods of volatility because you know if I, if I bought my property twenty years ago and I paid five hundred thousand dollars for it and it's worth two million dollars today, whether it's worth two million dollars or one point nine or two point one, you know it, that the value can jump around a little bit and have a little bit of volatility. I don't really care. Either way, I've got more than a million bucks of equity or it, it, close to a million and a half of equity uh, in that property. I've done well. Uh, whereas if you've if you bought in you know two or three years ago, you know your equity is much smaller in dollar terms. So the volatility really does change how you kind of feel about that investment and how it's performed and and change your financial position. But we can't take property with us. You know we've got to do something one day, whether we um, gift it on to our family members or beneficiaries. Mm. Or most importantly, the whole point of investing is to build wealth so that you've got a a secure um, financial situation to to fund retirement, so which could include divesting of a property at some point. So it's, um, I mean, one of the benefits of developing a long term strategy is to ascertain whether that's necessary, uh, and then if it is necessary, well, you want to start then thinking about, uh, you know, particularly if you want to build a property portfolio, it could be go and buy three properties and sell one, and you sell that one to reduce debt, for example, or um, increase liquidity and so forth. Well, with that one property that's earmarked for sale, you want to start thinking then about capital gains tax. And is there a way that you can go about minimising that or at least giving yourself the flexibility to minimise it should you need to sell? Hmm. So what are some of the other other taxes in that phase? And we can go deeper into them in a minute, but um, they start to become more material then, don't they? And what was not a factor in the first two phases can start to become quite real and this is one of the uh, things that's opened my eyes in doing some research for this episode. I didn't appreciate the the scale. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, land tax is uh, probably the most insidious because when we go and buy an investment property, it's quite often it it might not trigger land tax, particularly if Mm. it's our first one. Uh, Most uh, land tax is a a state-based tax. So it really depends. So it's levied on the land value, not the actual total value of the property, but just the unimproved land value of the property that you might hold in different states. Yeah. So if you go and buy... And, and of course, we want our land value to be a pretty significant component because that's what does the appreciating over time and the building does the depreciating over time. So absolutely, we want so that to grow. 
That's right. So if you're paying a little land tax, it's a it's a good sign or good good signal you've got a, a strong val- land value component. Uh, except for the fact it's a tax and it's a donation to the state government that we might not necessarily uh, really voluntarily make. Uh, so always good to think about it and try and reduce it. But we have a each state has a land tax three threshold. So quite often you can go and buy your first investment property and it might not trigger land tax. But then once you buy your second investment property, all that first first property starts to appreciate in value. Uh, that's when land tax can start to arise. But if you think about it, you know, if you buy an investment property in your 40s and by the time you get to your 60s, you're retired, you've held that property for 20, 25 years. As you can imagine, you're going to have a lot of equity. There's going to be a lot of land value components. So it's a tax that gets worse over time. And it's a tax that is at its worst at, at a time when you when really you want to be income. Yeah, when you want to be minimizing your taxes. So I mean, I've got a client uh, in Sydney. He inherited a little bit of property from his uh, father, um, but really he, he's been a successful property investor for a long time. Uh, he's been buying since the 80s and he's done incredibly well. There's no doubt about it. And so I'm not telling you the story so people feel sorry for him by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination, but his land tax bill eats up about 40, 45% of his net rental income. You know, yeah. that's a lot of money and there's nothing he can do about it because... If you change the ownership of a property, it'll trigger capital gains tax and stamp duty typically. Mm. So you're kind of stuck in an ownership structure and then you're paying uh, a lot of land tax. And now, again, it's no big deal for him. He's he's in a, a very he's strong, a fi- yeah, he's yeah. A strong financial position. But I'd imagine if if he could go back and talk to himself in the 80s, he'd, he'd start really thinking deeply about it. Mm. And there, there would have been ways that he could have minimized it. I guess this uh, can also be an even bigger thing if we are going to pass on properties and have multi-generational wealth because uh, our inherited, uh, those that receive our inheritance are going to have this to deal with too. And if if their focus is more on income at that stage as well, then, you know, these things are going to be important too. Yeah, and if you have a really heavy land value type property, it's possible that you end up passing on something that might be negative cash flow too. Mm. You're passing on a, an income liability each year. Sure, you've got a very valuable asset, I'm sure. So anyone that's going to give you a valuable asset, of course, you're not going to say no. But you know, it's just one of those things that I guess when we first start investing, we don't really think what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years' time. And it's a long time to project mm. and lots of things can change over that time, yeah. including uh, the tax system. Although I don't think, I can't ever imagine a time <laughs> where, where they'll get rid of land tax. So mm. um, I think it's going to be uh, around uh, for a long time in some way or form. And the best investors I've met, and it's it's been a gradual process for me, dragging up my thinking from that incredible short term, you know, I'm buying a property, I'm renovating it, I'm selling it, other variations of that to what's actually going to be an asset to hold for the rest of my life and then thinking generational as to what am I going to pass on, what am I going to teach my kids, you know, how are we going to set this all up to keep us uh, from slipping back to the the middle class, if you will. Um, not that there's anything wrong with it, but you spend if you spend, you know, your life building and moving you upwards in the, um, I guess, your wealth. You you want it to continue, if possible, for the next generation. It's a completely different mindset, and you know that mindset that you adopt uh, to take that long term view is incredibly valuable because it will encourage you to make really good quality decisions. Mm. But also, it's incredibly valuable when it comes to tax too, because 
um, to be too short-term focused with tax. And you you sort of mentioned, Jerry, you know, a, a little while ago about, you know, the accountants, you know, that's what they're doing too. And, and to be honest, uh, I, I would wholeheartedly agree. You know, accountants spend a lot of their time thinking about the past 12 months and maybe a little bit about their time thinking about the next 12 months, but not really beyond that. Whereas financial advisors tend to th- be thinking about what's going to happen over the next 10, 20 years, you know, very sort of long-term view, where we're heading, where we're going. And you really need, uh, so people need to be conscious, I think, of that's the the mentality, which isn't a criticism of accountants, it's an observation. You know, mm. that they need to be, they're doing what they're, they're doing, that's their job. But when uh, we're thinking about our own investments and we're then thinking about the questions to ask our accountants, yeah. we really need well, to... Well, I guess if they're responding to how do I save tax this year as the primary question or, you know, how do I make uh, this more affordable over the next few years to um, hold the property as the primary questions, then they're going to answer that and, and slant their advice possibly towards that as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what are some of the income tax considerations if we now go through each of the three sort of core tax areas? Um, might be more than three, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah, um, sure. When it comes to income tax, what are some of the considerations there? So income tax is going to depend on the phase that the property is going through. And, uh, of course, then you might have several properties and they might be at different sort of phases. Mm. But um, the negative gearing phase from an in- income tax perspective, obviously, you would like to have the loss in the the person that has the highest tax rate, you know, the highest taxable income, uh, because that's going to mean that their loss is uh, is taxed at their highest marginal rate. If that's forty-seven percent or or thirty-nine percent, which are the the two top uh, tax brackets, and most people are going to fall into hmm. into those tax brackets, um, then that's going to maximise. But the problem so they'd then effectively get more deductions along the way because of that higher tax bracket. If it was put solely or mostly in the name of that higher tax. Yep, yep. spot on. But the consequences of doing that, because th- th- that's just doing sort of, I guess the a common sort of reaction from accountants, mm. oh, buy an investment property, it's negatively geared, put it in the highest income earner's name. Now, the problem with that, though, in the longer term is that let's say the, the wife has the highest income, the husband has the lowest income, they go and buy three properties, three investment properties, uh, they put them all in the wife's name. Now, that's great while they're working, but then as soon as they retire, maybe they're drawing super pensions or whatever, well, that's tax-free. And so then all the rental income goes to the wife. Now, let's say that there's $60,000 of net rental income. She's going to pay $11,000 in tax. Whereas if those properties were owned equally between the two of them, she'd pay $4,000 in tax. So we're not talking about big numbers here. It's $7,000 difference. But at the end of the day, when you're retired and you're relying upon investment income to fund uh, living expenses, you want to be paying less tax rather than more. Hmm. So this and it again, obviously scales up, you know, it, the higher that's right. that income is. Exactly right. Yeah. So it's gonna it's gonna become a a compounding problem. You know, if it's if if it's seven grand difference when you first retire, you know, in, in 10 years after you know, after retirement, it's gonna be more. It's never gonna get less. So it's it's going to uh, get worse. So you might in that situation, what do you do? Well, I would say that when people start investing, they tend to have a, a relatively weak financial position and that's why they're starting investing so tax benefits and cash flow and maximizing negative cash flow 
uh, or after-tax cash flow, I should say, uh, is important. So putting that first property in the highest income earner's name probably makes sense. And maybe it even makes sense to some degree for the second property, but maybe less so. But when it comes to the third property, um, in using that example, well, that's when you might look for some diversification. And you might say, look, we could put it in the wife's name because she's a higher income earner, but how much marginal tax benefit will we get? And maybe we're better off putting it in a different entity, whether that's in the husband's name, a super fund or a trust or joint names, whatever it might be, it's going to depend on their situation, of course. But that's when sort of taking that longer term view and not being just laser focused on how much tax can I save over the next 12 months, but really taking that balanced view and saying, well, maybe I'll forego a little bit of tax saving earlier on so that I can save more tax down the track. And there's other factors that obviously go into that case by case. You know, will one spouse work longer and the other one could be without an income entirely that could be receiving that, you know, a large amount of that rental income without with little tax. That's right. And, you know, that's the best thing, Jared, that a long-term plan provides is context for making these decisions, right? So if you, if you don't know what your long-term plan looks like, then you don't really have a context. You, you, you can ask me, Stuart, what name should I put this property in? Well, I don't have a context. I don't know, you know, where you're going, what you're going to do, what your incomes will be in the future, when you're going to retire, all those sorts of things. So, and, and it's not necessarily that you have to sit down and and have a, a super detailed plan about what's going to happen in 20 mm. years, because of course it's it's very difficult to predict. But not not paying any attention to it or not not uh, uh, giving it any thought uh, is probably equally uh, silly as well. Mm. So the next tax that we've got to consider land tax. We spoke of it earlier. Uh, what are some of the thoughts there? So as I said, it's a state-based tax. So one of the easy ways to minimise it is to spread properties across various states uh, because typically each state has their tax-free threshold and that's going to be in different states. Uh, in WA, it's 300000 it's 250000 in Victoria. Uh, New South Wales is kind enough to index theirs. I think it's approaching 600000 I don't know uh, Queensland off the top of my head. I think it's closer to so two, two hundred odd thousand. So, mm. um, but either way, you're not going to pay very much tax if you have less than a million dollars worth of land value. And remember, I'm talking about land value rather than the property value in each of those states. Now, uh, sometimes people don't feel comfortable doing that. You know, we we tend to yeah. like to invest in areas that we know. We like the 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 fact that property is is material. It's there. You can drive past it. You can see it. You know, if anything goes wrong, you can uh, deal with it. But equally, I, I think if you're going to be a professional investor, you, there's certainly ways and means to invest outside of your domicile state uh, in a way that's prudent and provides not only some geographical diversification from an investment perspective, um, but also then some some tax benefits. If you're not, uh, if you're just sort of state focused, you're not going to invest outside of your state. Uh, then think very carefully about using a family trust in some states. So there's some states that uh, charge much higher land tax rates uh, if you put a property in a, in a family trust. And in that situation, you might be better off putting a property in a company. Now, most people or most accountants will go, no, no, don't put a property in a company because a company doesn't get the 50% capital gains tax discount. So you'll pay a lot more capital gains tax. But with the reduction of the company tax rate down to 25%, uh, if, you, if you're able to avail yourself of that lower tax rate, 
it's it's far less it's less costly, less more costly. Like it's 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 more attractive. If you're on the now. top tax bracket anyway, at forty seven cents, and that's twenty three and a half. Yep. The fifty percent reduction very Versus close to the twenty five. Twenty five. That's it. So no. you're not paying that much more, but you know, you might be saving ten thousand dollars a year in land tax. <laughs> so, you know, it, it sort of speaks for itself. So um typically investing in your own personal name, there's not much you can do uh to minimize land tax. Uh, even uh, spreading uh properties amongst spouses, those sorts of things. You can do a little bit to minimize land tax, but really I, I think um so if anyone's already got a couple of properties in their state, I would encourage them to think about investing interstate, not purely just based on land tax. I think there's lots of good reasons to do that. Uh, but particularly if you're uh, going to use entities, be very careful. Um, mm. In some uh, jurisdictions, it's and you've got multiple properties, you, you put them in multiple trusts. Other jurisdictions, you might use a company. Um, uh, sometimes it's just much better to go personal name. But I think it's just really about understanding the regime um, and then understanding how your decisions today might impact you longer term, as we've talked about. Mm. It's a tax that tends to creep up on us. Thanks for joining me for part one of our discussion on minimising tax. We've got Stuart coming back for part two in our next episode where we're going to touch on the all-important capital gains tax and the considerations we need to keep in mind there. And we're going to go into the use of trusts and structures, who they're for, what are the benefits, what are the downsides, and then how to go about finding a tax advisor and some really good advice about um, how to what is a holistic accountant. Um, and some of my personal experiences when seeking out the right accountant at the various stages of my journey. So let's catch you on the next one. Mm-hmm.